Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on with our study here in Hebrews. We're in the last chapter of Hebrews, chapter 13, and we'll be starting at verse 1. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Lord, we'll thank you for this study. We've really enjoyed Mark's uh, teaching here, and we, we thank you for his diligence and willingness to dive in to study this and to make this book a lot more alive. We thank you for this, and we appreciate the, all the work that he's done and, and continue to, to bless us as we continue our study here as we are coming close to the end of the chapter. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. And good evening, Mark. Good evening. It's good to be with everyone again. We are getting down to the conclusion of this letter to Hebrews uh, in what we call chapter 13. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 6 in chapter 13. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Great, thank you. So we've had this big view of the spiritual nature of the new covenant. Throughout this letter, we saw some of that magnificent imagery in chapter 12. But here he reduces it down to the practical day-to-day applications of God's plan and purpose for his people. And he starts it off by talking about brotherly love. This is the word Philadelphia that our city comes from also. And, of course, it's uh, alluding to Christ's teaching in the Gospel of John that the world will know you're my disciples by how much you love each other. Not necessarily that your doctrine is completely accurate, that you agree on every point, but rather that you love each other. 
as Christ has loved us, we should love each other. And so this should endure. And we have to remember the context here that the new spiritual Israel, which consists of Judean and foreigner, is still intermingled with the old physical Israel, which was in her last few years, actually. But they were still both Israel, and they were intermingled. Some of these injunctions here will apply only to fellow believers, but others would apply to Judeans in the synagogue community who have not yet come to realize that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the long-promised Messiah. So they need to continue to love each other, all the members of their community, and to practice hospitality. There is a passage in the 133rd Psalm that says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell in unity. Paul writes about this in other letters, and Peter writes about this in some of his letters. So it's kind of this idea of brotherly love. is It was very important in Christ's teaching, and it is found scattered throughout uh, the New Testament. John in 1 John says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we should lay down our lives for our brethren. The early Christians were noted for their hospitality in a lot of the historical Roman writings. The Greek world, of which Rome was a part, valued hospitality greatly. We see examples of hospitality in the Old Testament, particularly with Abraham and the very early characters back in the book of Genesis. The inns in the Roman world of the first century were sketchy, uh, we would say, today, and could be a very dangerous thing. So it would make sense for Christians to board with other Christians when they were traveling. Then he moves on to talk about those who are imprisoned, and this would make more sense in the context that these are fellow believers who are uh, suffering for their faith. Incarceration in the Roman world was uh, not a pleasant thing. You didn't really get fed unless somebody brought in food to feed you. And the Roman writers had to comment on how well fed the Christian prisoners were by other Christians on the outside. The Roman world, in fact, thought that these Christians were atheists because they did not have priests or altars or any of the trappings of religion known in the Roman world, but they were able to see how well they took care of each other, especially those who were imprisoned. Marriage is brought up next. And marriage here is listed as a a good thing. Paul, in in some places, says it's all right not to marry. It was very odd for someone in the Judean nation not to marry because your standing in the kingdom of God was based on being able to pass your 
real estate heritage down to physical descendants. But because of the present distress that was coming upon all the Christians at the time these letters were written, Paul said that it's okay not to marry. But there's no general call to abstain from marriage or anything. And here we see marriage spoken of uh, very highly. Of course, this would be a different marriage than what the government of the United States now considers to be marriage. Paul in Ephesians 5 or 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for it is because of these things, talking about sexual immorality, that the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. Included also with that sexual Impurity is the idea of covetousness, which he gets into here in verse 5, our writer does, the love of money, being jealous of the success of others, never being satisfied or content with what we have. So he urges the readers in verse 5 to be content, not to be jealous of others' physical possession. Christ said in Luke 12, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Paul wrote to Timothy in his first letter to Timothy that a bishop should be no lover of money because the love of money is a root of all evils. So anxiety and discontent are are not good things within the believer's community. We should seek contentment as they sought contentment there after reading this letter. Probably the greatest teaching on this is in Matthew 6 from the Sermon on the Mount where Christ urges his people not to be anxious, worrying about what we will eat or drink or wear. The foreigners seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. We have a quote mixed in here from Joshua, chapter 1. I will never abandon you. I will never forsake you. So, Uh, very consistent with the words of Christ here in these admonitions and with the words of Paul and the words of Peter in their letters as well as uh, the psalmist and other Old Testament writers. All right, any thoughts or comments here, uh, verses 1 through 6? I think just the the focus here is that God is with you based on that last statement you just, you know, the last quote from Joshua that you just said, you know, God is with you. And he won't forsake you. So, uh, you know, that, I think that's overriding in 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 with all the verses we just read previously to that. Yes, good thought. All right, we have just kind of a short uh, thought added on here, which would be verses seven and eight. If someone would read those two, please. Remember your leaders who spoke of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. All right. So we are to remember the spiritual leaders who, in that 
age, risked life and limb to declare the word of God throughout the Roman world. They're to consider their lives, imitate their faith. Yeah, now this is uh, egregiously mistranslated in the King James because the translators were under a mandate to uh, put authoritarian language into the scriptures where it says there, remember those who have the rule over you. But the literal translation is be mindful of those leading you, remember your leaders, or remember your guides who declared the word. Those who are leading by example, not ruling over you. Again, we the Church of England at the time of the King James was very hierarchical. It was identical to the Catholic Church, except that the king put himself in the place of the pope. And then you had the same hierarchy and confiscation of wealth and the same type of tyranny that epitomized the Catholic Church in the Dark Ages and then on through the Renaissance period. So it's very important to see that the original deal is not talking about someone that has absolute rule over you and you do what they say. The Church of Latter-day Saint comes to mind as a modern example of this. And in fact, verse 8 is one of their favorite verses to quote in their brochures or in their uh, little door-to-door visitations. Although, again, it's twisted a little bit out of the original context when they use it. The leaders of the churches in the first century were working to the death, basically. They knew the end was coming. They had the example of Christ meeting a horrible death at the hands of the Judean leadership as an example. And in fact, uh, that is what happened to most of the apostles and many of the other early church leaders. They were uh, hounded and eventually killed by the Judean leadership, particularly once under Nero. The power of Rome was welded to the power of the Judean Sanhedrin, which is depicted quite ably by the prostitute riding the beast in the book of Revelation. Together, those two were able to end the lives of most of the early leaders, but they had faith unto death, and this is what this first generation is encouraged to have uh, over and over again. I mean, think of the second and third chapters of Revelation, the messages to the seven churches in Asia. Most of them conclude, be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. The message in verse 8 about Jesus Christ being the same is uh, kind of a paraphrase of the 102nd Psalm. You are the same and your years have no end. The leaders of the church will change, will come and go as time passes, but Jesus Christ will not change. All right, any other thoughts or comments on these two verses? I appreciate your saying about the King James misinterpreting that. Yes. Yeah, I mean, 
this has been a terrible travesty that's kept the whole English-speaking world in uh, confusion for 400 years. And uh, with the modern technology available now with computers and the Internet, people are waking up everywhere in the English-speaking world as to just how many bad places there are in the King James. Not to deny that it has a certain beauty to uh, a lot of its passages, but particularly those that deal with the authority of the civil government and even church leaders and church organization, great uh, liberties were taken uh, during that translation effort. It appears that this could be a backup quote for the Romans 13 argument about civil government and so forth. Yes. Well, a little bit. But again, here in this particular verse, it's talking about those who declared the word of God. So you yes. can't make the misapplication that is always made in Romans 13, where I believe it's talking about the synagogue leaders uh, and the synagogue magistrates who actually bore the sword of Rome and supplied to the federal government, the state government, the local government. That. That was not God's concern. That was not Paul's concern. He was worried in that letter about getting the righteous remnant out of old Israel before she was utterly and completely destroyed. So the context there, you know, changes the meaning of Romans 13 dramatically. All right, then. Well, let's move on and read uh, verses 9 through 16, please. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, but do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. All right, so we have some uh, very interesting imagery in this paragraph. There were lots of strange teachings going around through the uh, Judean communities at this time. People who were adding to the Law of Moses we have to assume, again, from what we find in the book of Acts, that these Judean Christians were following the uh, dietary restrictions of the law of Moses and following the entire law of Moses, just as Paul found when he went back to Jerusalem. Uh, there were myriads of thousands of Judean believers, all zealous for the law. And Paul made a public demonstration that he also followed the law zealously at that time we find that towards the end of the book of acts but here there's something else going on 
besides just the law of Moses here. Now, there's a contrast that begins here in verse 10 about the altar. There was no physical altar amongst the believers. As mentioned, the Romans thought they were atheists because they didn't kill animals on an altar with a priest in a uniform. They had an altar that could not be seen, and and the entire letter has contrasted the reality of spiritual things that cannot be seen or touched or heard. But the believer has a right that the priests in Jerusalem had no right. They're offering animals in a way that the Romans no doubt would approve of. Physical blood is being shed. It's being carried into the holy place to be an offering for the sins of the priests and of the people. Again, the allusion to the Day of Atonement, which is already figured so prominently in this letter. And then their bodies are burned outside the camp. And Jesus also suffered outside the walls of the city or outside the camp. So we see that the entire ritual given to the Israelites at Mount Sinai was looking forward to the events during the life of Christ. And the feast days and these details of the Day of Atonement all were completely fulfilled when Jesus was killed. Golgotha, the Hill of the Skull, uh, we drove right by one just north of the old city there in Jerusalem. Looks just like a skull. There's a rock formation, a cliff, busy road right below it. Looks like the eye sockets and the nose hole and everything. <laughs> so There's a couple of paintings that actually show the crucifixion taking place right on top of that skull rock there just north of the old city of Jerusalem that are quite intriguing. But this was outside the walls of Jerusalem. That's where he suffered in order to sanctify the people by means of his own blood. But remember that this is all spiritual in nature. If you had a vial of Christ's blood to offer on eBay, you know, how much could you get for it? I like to ask that thought question in classes. <laughs> but the physical blood of Jesus might have had some effect. I don't know in those days, but that's not what it's all about. It's about the spiritual value of his offering himself after following the law of Moses perfectly, becoming the perfect lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, by offering himself that blood in a spiritual sense heals all believers for all times. And it has nothing to do with actually physically contacting the physical blood of Jesus' physical body. But he did shed this physical blood, which symbolized this greater spiritual healing power, and it was outside the camp. He was an outcast to Israel and to the Judean people. And we should also go to him outside the camp, bearing the stigma which attached to him. So as this letter is written, they're still part of the Judean synagogue community, but the time is rapidly coming when they would have to leave that community and then they would be then excommunicated. They would 
not have a legal religion according to the civil government of Rome. They would be outcasts to Rome and to Judea, bearing the same stigma that had attached to Christ in his physical form. And this next verse has to be greatly troublesome to our dispensational friends and relatives. We have no permanent city here. We look for the city, and this is the word mellow, which is mistranslated in the King James because it's a imminent future tense. It is the city that is about to come. I would get him, this is the new Jerusalem that appears at the end of the book of Revelation coming down to earth, but it's a spiritual city, and it's about to come. In their generation, it was about to come to replace the physical city of Jerusalem, which was not permanent. It was about to be burned to the ground and then scraped off the hill and thrown into hell or Gehenna. Uh, which is the little word again, the King James grossly mistranslates Gehenna and creates the word hell from Gehenna somehow. But Gehenna was the garbage dump in the valley of Hinnom down below Jerusalem on the southwest side. And so the physical city was about to go away, but the spiritual city, which was about to come, would be permanent. And Along with that physical city, which would be destroyed, the altar, the priesthood, the sacrifices, all of those physical accoutrements of the old age, of the old covenant, would be completely done away with. And they would be offering sacrifices of praise, songs, and talks about the Bible, about the gospel, preaching praise of the lips which acknowledge the name of Christ, the authority of Christ, the Godhood of Christ, this would become the sacrifices under the new age, not bloody sacrifices of innocent animals. And the Romans and the Judeans both had trouble putting their minds around that one. And then he throws back in the idea of hospitality, doing deeds of kindness, and sharing what you have with others, because sacrifices like these give pleasure to God. So when we help a homeless person, a person whose home is burned down, someone with medical issues, or a foster child who has an opportunity to go spend a week at summer camp with a strange guy like Tom. These are sacrifices now that give pleasure to God, and they are far more powerful than these old sacrifices of innocent animals under the old age of Moses. All right, thoughts or comments? I guess that was a compliment, Mark. I'm not sure yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a compliment. When I, when I used to work, you know, at camps uh, with the kids, the stranger you were, the more they loved it. To see a, <laughs> a grown man, you know, act kind of like a fool there, they got a big kick out of that. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you're still that way, Tom, but I expect you're highly entertaining. 
Uh, yeah, I try to work at it, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Mark. That was a great lesson. All right. Very good. Thank you for all participating. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.